Yo, is this thing on? Word. Welcome back to More Than a Body. My name is Jeff, and today we're going to be talking about how eating disorders can change the brain and a person beyond just their eating habits and their body. Personally, this is something I know I would have needed to hear and did need to hear as I started realizing I had a disordered relationship with food. My initial exposure and understanding of eating disorders was pretty limited. I think that's a common trend among most other people. The big ones that we hear about are anorexia and bulimia. When I first thought of those diagnoses, I thought about starvation, someone being extremely skinny, and people making themselves throw up. When in reality, there is so much more to them and so many other eating disorders as well that are just as serious but maybe not talked about as frequently. There is so much more to disordered relationships with food beyond just watching what you eat or over-exercising. And in this episode, I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into each eating disorder, what the symptoms can be, behaviors found in those with disordered eating patterns, and how eating disorders can change the brain and the person that's struggling with it. These kinds of struggles are silent epidemics. People that struggle walk among our society silently, and the people that have disordered relationships with food sometimes don't even know that they have them, and if they do, they feel crazy or like no one would be able to understand. Speaking from personal experience, I felt like I was the only one in the world facing the struggle that I was. For that reason, I didn't talk about it with most people, and I'm sure this is true for a lot of others going through the same thing, which is why I feel it's crucial to bring light to eating disorders and what they look like. The more educated we can be, the better we're able to support those that can be struggling. This episode might be the longest one that I put out yet, so please forgive me. I just find the neurological effects of an eating disorder on the brain to be fascinating, albeit scary, and there is so much here to unpack. If there is background noise, it is my dog trying to bring me his ball so that I will throw it to him and I apologize. But with the talk of eating disorders, I do want to give a little trigger warning. If you think talk of these disorders or you struggle with toxic food in general and you feel you may be triggered or upset, it's okay to skip this episode and walk away. I want what's best for you. If you don't want to hear about the different kinds of eating disorders and would rather hear about their effects on the brain and other aspects of an individual's life, skip ahead to... 28 minutes and 5 seconds, baby. Enough of my jibber-jabber. We're going to dive right into it like a skinny-dipping grandma that's had a little too much to drink on 4th of July weekend. I am going to start with the more common ones, so I'm going to begin with anorexia. And please know that while I've exhibited certain symptoms, I am not an expert or a psychologist. What I am sharing is from psychologist, scientist, and doctor-written research articles that I have found on the internet. Most of the content that I will be sharing today actually comes from the National Eating Disorders website. I will make sure to link it in the show notes if you're curious and want to do some reading yourself. According to the National Eating Disorders website, anorexia nervosa is categorized by weight loss, difficulty maintaining an appropriate body weight for height, age, and stature, and distorted body image. People with anorexia generally restrict the number of calories and the types of food that they eat. Some people with the disorder also compulsively exercise, purge by vomiting or using laxatives, and sometimes binge eat. Anorexia commonly begins during adolescence, but an increasing number of children and other adults are also being diagnosed. You can't always simply tell if someone suffers from anorexia just by looking at them. Contrary to popular belief, they don't need to be significantly underweight or emaciated to be struggling. Studies have shown that larger-bodied individuals, quote-unquote, can also have anorexia, but they often go undiagnosed because of cultural prejudice against obesity. Hey bro, you're making a lot of noise today. 
My dog is normally super chill, so I'm apologizing in advance if you hear intense panting or squeaky ball noises. It's not me. If I'm going to chew on a squeaky ball, I normally reserve that for Tuesdays. This is actually him. Catch me tomorrow, though, because tomorrow is a Tuesday. You're going to hear me reference the DSM-5 a lot in this episode, and the DSM-5 is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. To be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, according to the DSM-5, the following criteria must be met. 1. Intense restriction of energy intake that leads to significantly low body weight in the context of age, gender, physical health, and developmental trajectory. 2. A severe fear of gaining weight or becoming fat, even if that person is already underweight. 3. A disruption in the way a person's body weight or shape is experienced and perceived by themselves in denial of the severity of intense low body weight that they're at or may be at. And even if all these criteria aren't met, a concerning eating disorder could still be present. Atypical anorexia encompasses people who meet the criteria but might not be regarded as underweight despite having lost a large amount of weight. Research studies have not found a difference in the medical and psychological impacts of anorexia and atypical anorexia, so those that struggle often face the same mental, emotional, and medical transgressions. Basically, this means that people that aren't even considered severely underweight but are in what appears to be a larger body, they can also be anorexic as well if they've lost a significant amount of weight and are pursuing that. This is super unfortunate because it means that there's a whole population of people out there that could be struggling but might not be diagnosed. You don't need to fit perfectly into a box to be valid. Some emotional and behavioral warning signs are dramatic weight loss, having a preoccupation with weight, food, calories, fat grams, and dieting, often refusing to eat certain foods, and potentially even restricting whole food categories like no carbohydrates, making frequent comments about feeling quote-unquote fat or overweight despite significant weight loss, developing food rituals like eating foods in certain orders or excessive chewing, cooking meals for others without eating the meal yourself, consistently making excuses to avoid mealtimes or situations involving food, expressing a need to burn off calories, maintaining an excessive rigid exercise regimen despite weather, fatigue, illness, or injury, withdrawing from friends and activities and becoming more isolated, withdrawn, and secretive, becoming concerned about eating in public, having limited social spontaneity, having body dysphoria and incorrectly perceiving body weight or shape. Oftentimes, females that are through puberty can have lost their menstrual period. People suffering also feel ineffective and unsuccessful. They have a strong need for control in nearly every aspect of their life. They have a limited ability to think or pay attention. They are overly restrained in their initiative or drive and often lack the ability to express emotions, which leads to them being very shut off. Whew, that's a lot, especially for one person. Personally, I exhibited a spectrum of different symptoms from various disorders, but with anorexia in particular, cooking was a huge and is a huge coping mechanism for me, but also like a love language. I love to cook for other people. I love just trying to create something that tastes orgasmic. Sorry to use that word. Sorry if I made a mother out there uncomfortable. But I like cooking and being able to enjoy it with people that I love, but I quit eating the food I would cook for them unless they would eat one of my pre-approved meals. I would just cook and allow them to eat it. I became super socially withdrawn as well, kind of skipping out on social encounters because they felt like they were full of landmines. I'm really excited because lately I've been able to say yes to a bunch of time with friends because that wasn't really possible for me a few months ago. And I was also an intense control freak, which I'll expand on a little bit later. Anywhoville. 
I haven't even started on the physical symptoms, but a few of them are stomach cramps, abnormal laboratory findings like anemia, dizziness and fainting, sleep problems, cuts and calluses across the top of the finger joints, which is a result of inducing vomiting, dental problems, cavities, tooth sensitivity, dry skin, brittle nails, muscle weakness, yellow skin, poor wound healing, impaired immune function, kidney damage, loss of bone density, fast heart rate, headaches, so much. That is the scope of information and research I've collected about anorexia. There is so much more information out there. If you're interested in learning more or want to better understand it for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to look for more resources. The next eating disorder I want to talk a little bit more about is bulimia nervosa. Bulimia nervosa is a serious, potentially life-threatening eating disorder characterized by a cycle of binging and raw. I'm sorry, I think I've settled my dog now. But it's also characterized by a series of compensatory behaviors such as self-induced vomiting designed to undo or compensate for the effects of binge eating. According to our friend, the DSM-5, the official diagnostic criteria for bulimia are recurrent episodes of binge eating. An episode of binge eating can be classified by both of the following. One, eating a short window of time, like within any two-hour period, an amount of food that is significantly larger than most people would eat during a similar period of time time and under similar circumstances. And two, a feeling of being out of control overeating during the episode, a feeling that you can't stop eating or control what or how much you're eating. It's also classified by recurrent inappropriate compensatory behavior in order to prevent weight gain such as vomiting, misuse of laxatives, diuretics, or other medications, fasting, or excessive exercise. The binge eating and behaviors that you're using to compensate both incur on average at least once a week for at least three months. Additionally, a person's perception of themselves is largely dependent on how they feel about their body shape and their weight. The disturbance doesn't occur exclusively during episodes of anorexia nervosa. In general, behaviors and attitudes indicate that weight loss, dieting, and control of food are primary concerns, and that leaves little room for other areas of focus or importance in that person's life. Their center of focus is strictly on food, and that is where they invest most of their time and energy. Gang, gang, that was me. Evidence of binge eating, including disappearance of large amounts of food in short periods of time or lots of empty wrappers and containers indicating consumption of large amounts of food, feeling uncomfortable when you eat around others, developing food rituals, skipping meals, or taking small portions of food at regular meals, disappearing after eating, often to the bathroom, any new practice with food or fad diets, including cutting out entire food groups, fear of eating in public or with others, stealing, hoarding, or hiding food in storage places, drinking excessive amounts of of water or non-caloric beverages. LMAO never would have thought that would be a side effect of an eating disorder. I have a gallon water jug named Jessamine, so call me out, but she actually just got crushed under a treadmill last week, so can we get a moment of silence for my girl? All right, moment of silence over. Getting back on track, some more symptoms of bulimia are using excessive amounts of mouthwash, mint, and gum, maintaining an excessive rigid exercise regimen, showing unusual swelling of the cheeks or jaw area, teeth being discolored, stained, and weak, creating lifestyle schedules to make time for binge and purge sessions, withdrawing from friends and activities and beginning to isolate themselves, looking bloated from fluid retention, frequently dieting, showing extreme concern and preoccupation with body weight and shape, frequent checking in the mirror for perceived flaws or imperfections in appearance, 
having secret recurring episodes of binge eating, purging after a binge, including vomiting, abusive laxatives, diet pills, excessive exercising, and fasting, and also extreme mood swings. A person can go from being happy to intensely sad very quick. They can be easily frustrated or irritable, which can come across personal to other people when in reality it really isn't. They also struggle with uh, concentrating having the ability to concentrate and disturbances in their sleep. I hope I didn't lose you there. I know that was a lot. I apologize, but I just think it's really important that I cover all the bases. To make this a little bit more personal, some of the symptoms that I exhibited from bulimia, I would use laxatives a lot after I would binge. I thought it would somehow make me crap out all of the food that I felt super guilty for eating in the first place. I also vomited or made myself vomit more times than I probably care to admit and more times than people in my life probably actually knew. Oftentimes it would be after binging episodes because I was so uncomfortably full I just wanted to make the pain stop or just times that I felt guilty. Many people with bulimia also struggle with co-occurring conditions such as self-injury, cutting, and other forms of self-harm without suicidal intention, substance abuse, impulsivity like risky sexual behavior, shoplifting, etc., diabulimia, which is the intentional misuse of insulin for type 1 diabetes. All of this information came from the National Eating Disorders website, and while it covers the surface, there is, of course, always more to learn and understand. Moving on, I'm going to talk about binge eating disorder, which is a severe, life-threatening, and treatable eating disorder characterized by recurrent episodes of eating large quantities of food very quickly and to the point of discomfort a lot of times. It's also a feeling of loss of control during the binge, experiencing shame, distress, or guilt afterwards, and not regularly using unhealthy compensatory measures like purging to counter the binge eating. It is the most common eating disorder in the United States. I exhibited a metric fudge ton of these symptoms myself, always felt guilty after eating foods I had considered bad, and that led me to insane binging episodes where sometimes I thought I was going to have to be taken to the ER because it hurt just to breathe. It was a violet, you're turning violet moment, except I didn't have a cool violet tint. I just felt like a blueberry that was ready to burst like something fierce you'd see on Dr. Pimple Popper. Binge eating disorder, otherwise known as BED, is one of the newest eating disorders formally recognized in the DSM-5, and the, the diagnostic criteria for BED, sorry my mouth took a shit, is as follows. Recurrent episodes of binge eating, the binge eating episodes are typically associated with three or more of the following, eating much faster than normal, eating until you're uncomfortably full, eating large amounts of food when you don't feel physically hungry, eating alone because you feel embarrassed or shameful by how much you're eating, and feeling disgusted with yourself, depressed, distressed, or very guilty afterwards. All right, please hold your breath. Well, actually, let me take a deep breath because here are the emotional and mental behaviors associated with it. <sighs> Fear of eating in public or with others, stealing or hoarding food in strange places, creating lifestyle schedules to make time for binge sessions, withdrawing from usual friends and activities, frequently dieting, showing extreme concern with body weight and shape, frequent checking in the mirror for perceived flaws in appearance, appearing uncomfortable eating around others, disruption in normal eating behaviors including eating throughout the day with no planned mealtime, skipping meals or taking small portions of food at regular meals, engaging in sporadic fasting or repetitive dieting, eating alone out of embarrassment at the quantity of food being eaten, feelings of disgust, depression, or guilt after overeating, fluctuations in weight, feelings of low self-esteem. All right, dog, you still with me? If you with me, put a hand up to the sky for Betty White. No, for real? Do it? 
or I'll have to pull a mom and tell you I'm not mad, just disappointed. Anywhoville, the health risks of BED are most commonly those associated with clinical obesity, weight stigma, and weight cycling, aka yo-yo dieting. Most people who are labeled clinically obese don't have binge eating disorder. However, of individuals with BED, up to two-thirds are labeled clinically obese. People who struggle with binge eating disorder tend to be of normal or higher than average weight, though BED can be diagnosed at any weight. Moving on, we're going to talk about OSFED, which stands for Other Specified Feeding or Eating Disorders. It was previously known as Eating Disorder Not Otherwise Specified, EDNOS, if I'm saying it right, kind of sounds like eggnog. Despite being considered a catch-all classification that was sometimes denied insurance coverage for treatment because it was seen as less serious, OSFED is a serious, life-threatening, and treatable eating disorder. The category was developed to encompass those individuals who might not have met the diagnostic criteria for anorexia or bulimia. Dang it, Ralston but still had a significant eating disorder. People with OSFED were actually just as likely to die as a result of their eating disorder as people with anorexia or bulimia. I'm going to move into Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, ARFID, which is a new diagnosis in the DSM-5 and was previously referred to as Selective Eating Disorder. ARFID is similar to anorexia in that both disorders involve limitations in the amount or types of food consumed, but unlike anorexia, ARFID does not involve any distress about body shape or size or fears of becoming overweight. There are children that go through phases of picky or selective eating. I mean, heck, when I was a kid, I wouldn't eat mac and cheese if it wasn't craft. But now, if I get American cheese on anything, you know someone has taken over my body or I have completely lost my mind and my ability to know good food. My apologies to all the American cheese lovers out there. I don't make the rules, but you're wrong. Anywhoville, a person with ARFID doesn't consume enough calories to grow and develop properly in, in adults to maintain their basic body function. In children, that can result in stalled weight gain and vertical growth, and in adults, it results in weight loss. According to the DSM-5, ARFID is diagnosed when an eating or feeding disturbance, like apparent lack of interest in eating or food, is manifested by persistent failure to meet appropriate nutritional or energy needs. The disturbance in a person's eating isn't better explained by food just not being available or by an associated culturally sanctioned practice. And the physical symptoms are very similar to that of anorexia because both involve lack of nutritional needs being met. Welcome back to Mac Daddy's Boating School. I am now going to teach you about PICA, which is an eating disorder that involves eating items that are not really considered food and that don't contain any type of nutritional value such as hair, dirt, and paint chips. Side story, I actually used to watch My Strange Obsession and remember there being episodes where people would like eat makeup or drywall and never would I have known it was an eating disorder. At the time, I just kind of watched and wondered if eyeshadow came in blue raspberry flavor and that's what drove a person to try it. Looking back, it honestly makes me more sad to think those people struggled from an eating disorder and that was likely caused by some unprocessed trauma in their life. The ingestion of those items isn't really part of a cultural or socially normative practice. Typical substances ingested tend to vary with age and availability. They can include soap, chalk, ash, clay, starch, or even ice. 
When we're kids, we often put things in our mouth as part of development, and it's important to know that this isn't a part of this disorder. I mean, heck, I ate a light bright and a plastic diamond when I was like five and pooped them right out. So eating of these objects typically are eaten at a time that's considered developmentally inappropriate. PICA often occurs with other mental health disorders associated with impaired functioning, like intellectual disabilities and schizophrenia. Iron deficiency, anemia, and malnutrition are two of the most common causes of PICA followed by pregnancy. For those that struggle, PICA is a sign that the body is trying to correct a significant nutrient deficiency, and treating that deficiency with medication or vitamins often can begin to resolve that issue. This bus gonna keep on chugging. Moving on to rumination disorder. Rumination disorder involves the regular regurgitation of food that occurs for at least one month. Regurgitated food might be rechewed or swallowed or even spit out. Typically, when someone regurgitates their food, they don't appear to be making an effort or they don't appear to be upset or disgusted by it. The DSM-5 crit... There I go again. Bro, I sounded like SpongeBob in Battle for Bikini Bottom when his tongue was just flopping around. I am so sorry. The DSM-5 criteria for rumination disorder is repeated regurgitation of food for a period of at least one month. Regurgitated might be rechewed, re-swallowed, or spit out. As I just said, the repeated regurgitation isn't due to a medication condition like a gastrointestinal condition. And also, this disorder doesn't occur with or coincide with anorexia, avoidant, restrictive eating disorder, bulimia, etc. Y'all, when I screw up, I'm not even going to edit it out. I'm human. We can laugh at me. It's okay. I laugh at me all the time, mainly because I'm hilarious, but we're going to get into orthorexia now. While it wasn't formally recognized in the DSM, awareness about it is increasing. The term orthorexia equates to an obsession with proper or quote-unquote healthy eating. And although being aware of and concerned about the nutritional content of the food you eat isn't a problem in and of itself, people with orthorexia become so obsessed on healthy eating that they actually damage their own well-being. Without any formal diagnostic criteria, it can be kind of hard to get a estimate on how many people have orthorexia and whether it's an eating disorder by itself or a type of existing eating disorder like anorexia or a form of OCD. Studies have actually shown that a lot of people that suffer with orthorexia also have obsessive compulsive disorder. All right, dog, you ready? Symptoms include compulsive checking of ingredient lists and nutritional labels, an increase in concern about the health of ingredients, cutting out an increasing number of food groups like all sugar, all carbs, all dairy, an inability to eat anything but a narrow group of foods that are deemed quote-unquote healthy, unusual interest in the health of what others are eating, spending hours per day thinking about what food might be served at upcoming events, showing high levels of distress when quote-unquote safe or healthy foods aren't available, obsessive following of food and quote-unquote healthy lifestyle blogs on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, and body image concerns may or may not be present. Sorry for all the quote-unquote typically what is deemed healthy in the eyes of the person with orthorexia varies, and oftentimes the obsession with it is not a healthy behavior in itself. There is so much within orthorexia that I've struggled with mad. I was constantly obsessing over what would be served at family meals, holidays, or at restaurants. Literally any meal I didn't make myself. I was constantly checking food ingredient lists like they were the Hogwarts letter I've been waiting for. All right, home stretch. I've got two more to cover for you before we get into the effect on the brain. 
compulsive exercise is not a recognized clinical diagnosis in the DSM-5, but many people struggle with symptoms associated with the term. Exercise that significantly interferes with important activities occurs at inappropriate times or in inappropriate settings or when the individual continues to exercise despite being sick or having injuries or other medical complications. It also occurs when there's intense anxiety, depression, irritability, feelings of guilt or distress. If someone's unable to exercise, they often maintain a very rigid exercise regimen despite any obstacles that they face like illness or injury. They have a discomfort with rest or inactivity. They use exercise to manage their emotions. Oh my gosh, this is so, so me. Exercise as a means of purging, needing to get rid of or burn off calories. Exercise as permission to eat. Exercise that is secretive or hidden, feeling as though you're not good enough, fast enough, or not pushing hard enough during a period of exercising, overtraining, withdrawal from friends and family. I should say this was me. Um, I am definitely working on it and have made significant progress. Thank God. But yeah, dog, being aware of stuff like that is scary. I would work out through, I worked out through COVID. I worked out through a concussion, back injuries. If I couldn't exercise, I would have the most intense anxiety. Not only did my life revolve around my exercise routine, that of my family and friends did too. And that's something, looking back, I really regret doing to those that I cared about. I was a very selfish person and lacked so much self-awareness because exercise and food had such a hold over me. It made me so anxious when I couldn't control exercise or food or make the time to exercise. A lot of eating disorders develop as a means to feel in control of something because a person has felt out of control of themselves or something in their life for so long. That was exactly it for me, but in reality, it ends up spiraling out of control and so a person like me just white knuckles and grips it even harder in the attempts to regain that control. It's wild sometimes looking back outside at who I became and the person I was as a result of all of that. It makes me sad, but I'm grateful at the same time because it's taught me so many important lessons about who I want and know myself to be beyond all of this. My motto is, every day be better than you were yesterday. It's actually written on my mirror and that's the goal. There are a ton of health consequences from compulsive exercising like bone density loss, loss of your menstrual cycle, female athlete triad in women, which encompasses disordered eating, amenorrhea, and osteoporosis, relative energy deficiency in sport, persistent muscle soreness, chronic bone and joint pain, increased incidence of injury, overuse injuries, stress fractures, stuff like that, persistent fatigue and sluggishness, altered resting heart rate, and increased frequency of illness and upper respiratory infections. All right, we've reached the last one, which is diabulimia. Diabulimia is actually a media coin term that refers to an eating disorder in a person with diabetes, typically type 1, and the person intentionally restricts their insulin in the hopes of losing weight. They focus a lot on food labels, numbers, and control, and those that suffer with diabetes are often at high risk already for developing an eating disorder. Sometimes diabulimia can stem from body image issues or the hope to lose weight, or it can start as a diabetes burnout. Unfortunately, regardless of its origin, treatment is 
really difficult because individuals with type 1 diabetes tend to show higher dropout rates and poorer treatment outcomes than other patients. An individual's particular diagnosis kind of depends on their eating disorder behaviors. The DSM-5 classifies insulin omission as a purging behavior, so someone could be diagnosed as bulimic if the person is binging and then restricting their insulin. could also be diagnosed as a purging disorder if the person is eating normally and then restricting their insulin, or anorexia if the person's severely restricting both food and their insulin. Alright, so if you listen to this description of each eating disorder, I know it was a lot to digest. I really appreciate you taking the time to educate yourself and learn a little bit more about the various kinds of eating disorders and what disordered eating habits can look like. Lots of people probably skipped through this and don't really care about these disorders and what they look like, but you're an absolute goat by educating yourself. And I'm giving you a golden peanut because golden stars are overrated. Ralston is giving you a lick on the face for that. And I apologize because his breath literally smells like diaper juice. For those of you that don't know, Ralston is my son, my life, my favorite mane, and the ultimate stink bomb, aka my golden retriever. Now I'm going to talk about what these disorders and their behaviors can do to the human brain and how they can affect everyday life and social life. I'm going to start out with the social life and then we're going to get into the brain. People with eating disorders have an inability to adequately regulate their emotions. That pretty much means that when they're faced with even the smallest of stressors, they might experience emotions that are considered unreasonable for the present situation. Actually, even thinking about a stressful event can trigger a chaotic storm of emotion that's nearly impossible for them to fight their way out of. That emotional dysregulation often results in outbursts that can harm social connections and cause increased shame or embarrassment. That shame and embarrassment a person feels at their inability to control their emotions only further fosters an already growing self-hatred. They begin to feel guilty for their emotional outbursts or expressions and frustrated that they can't control them, so they harbor resentment and anger towards themselves, which leads only to more outbursts. It's a slippery slope. For me, oftentimes when I was feeling super upset about my body or just tired in general from working out, I would get super short and irritable. I would lash out instantly after I did it. The voice in my head that I knew to be me but was quieter than my eating disorder voice would ask myself, why are you doing that? You're hurting someone you love. And that made me angry at myself. It made me hate myself more than I already did, which only added to my bitterness and emotional instability. My eating disorder has always been centered around a few different things feeling worthless, hating myself, not being able to forgive myself, and feeling out of control and needing control. Here I was adding to that self-hatred every time I would feel guilty for reacting out of turn. I was adding fuel to the fire, but it was like there was a gun to my head and there was no other option but to react in an inappropriate way. It wasn't in my control, which sounds stupid, but it's true. At least it didn't feel like it was in my control. You'd think recognizing the hurt you were causing someone else would have the opposite effect and cause someone to apologize or change, but often it only made me more angry at myself for doing it because I didn't know how to stop it and I didn't feel in control of it. I could see that I was hurting people I love, but that would just make me more emotional. It was like this never-ending cycle. I felt like I was spinning around, drowning in a washing machine, waiting for it to spit me out because I was powerless to find my own way out. 
My eating disorder was the machine and I was another cheese smelling sock being thrown around. The sad thing is my own lashing out, since it made me so angry, I only lashed out at people even more because I was angry at myself. And so they were just sitting there like, wow, this person is a giant dick, probably taking it very personally and thinking that I was genuinely upset with them when in reality I was just upset with myself for acting so upset with them and taking it out on them. And I could never be more sorry for that. We all experience disordered thought patterns from time to time. But with eating disorders, those thoughts occur way too often and come on so strongly, it's impossible to ignore them or redirect them without a tremendous amount of effort. It's like someone is screaming into your ear and you're expected to be able to focus on an exam that you're taking. When you craft a cocktail of malnutrition with a lack of social or relational support, eating disorders greatly increase an individual's risk of developing depression or anxiety. And if that individual already suffers from either or both, it often only worsens. If you experience intense anxiety, your brain kind of fixates on something and constantly thinks about that thing over and over and over. It is terrible, dude. Other thoughts branch from that one original thought until you spiral down a rabbit hole and you don't know which way is up or down or how to pull yourself out. It's kind of like that except even changing your environment, hanging out with a friend, or doing something to call your mind won't make the eating disorder thoughts go away. My eating disorder brain will scream at me to have chocolate after dinner even when I'm not hungry and it doesn't quit until I have some chocolate. Then afterwards, I feel guilty and my brain still screams at me to have more to try to prove a point to myself. It is crazy and you cannot make it go away. When I figure out the trick to that, I will make sure to share it because oof. Anywhoville. Depression and anxiety can trigger the start of disordered eating behaviors as a way to cope, which can make it hard to know which condition came first. But there's no doubt that these mental disorders heighten and complicate one another. People need treatment for both their eating disorder and all other co-occurring mental health problems in order to fully heal and recover. Treating all conditions doesn't only allow the individual struggling to create a foundation they can build on towards recovery, it also helps them maintain that progress. Oftentimes, other co-occurring anxiety, depressive, dissociative, or behavioral disorders only make the eating disorder grow. Those disorders are like kindling for a wildfire. At the same time, the eating disorder is kindling for the other disorder as well. They feed off of one another and worsen the longer that they coincide, making it even more difficult for someone like you or me to find our way out. This is why a ton of people go undiagnosed or treated. Let me just say, I am pro-therapy, dude. I think everyone should go to therapy. Talking about about your crap is scary. I totally get that, but it is so necessary and important. It allows you to be self-aware and find the tools that you need. I think I've seen four therapists in the past two weeks just trying to find the right one. Be picky about it. Try to find someone you feel comfortable and safe with, but definitely, definitely look into it, homie. Highly recommend. Especially if you want to get better with your eating disorder, you're going to have to work on all the other things that surround it. Because eating disorders often involve food restriction, the brain fails to receive the appropriate amount of nutrients, which makes it incredibly difficult to concentrate and perform well in things like work or school. When a person's performance begins to worsen, their stress levels shoot up like I do at the word peanut butter, and that can lead to them relying heavily on destructive coping mechanisms that include disordered eating patterns. In essence, by not giving their brain the proper fuel, they're only worsening the effects of their eating disorder because they're unable to 
perform well and they begin to feel like a failure. So naturally they just cope in even unhealthier ways and amplify the already existing side effects of their eating disorder. And not only perform well, but also realizing the destructive path they're leading themselves down. If you aren't eating properly, it would be ludicrous of me to expect you to be in the right headspace to make sound, good decisions or to be able to look at anything or anyone, including yourself, in a reflective and objective way. If your brain is not properly fueled, how can we expect it to carry out the functions that the brain is supposed to carry out and to make healthy and rational decisions? We can't, and that sucks. So feed yourself. The part about being unable to concentrate, I feel down to my ball sack. I'm so sorry. I really need to be better with my humor. It, I, yeah. For me and my recovery journey and when I was in the heart of my eating disorder, I often questioned if I had like ADD or something because I could not focus in my classes. I could not focus in my job. And of course, that was like another bullet to my self-esteem. People that suffer from eating disorders feel intense amounts of shame and guilt. I can't stress this enough. When they're engaging in those behaviors, they feel super guilty, which normally leads to them pulling away from their friends and loved ones. Trouble with that is that in isolating themselves, they're better able to hide their habits and avoid confrontation. I know I did this a ton. I hated when people would confront me and make me feel as though I had a problem because I was already picking myself apart in my brain and feeling like I looked like a freak show to not only myself, but those I cared about. Looking back, I realized that I needed those confrontations. Because when you're isolated, the insight from other people that can lead to finding help disappears. At first, I didn't want to hear it was a problem. But as it began to take over my life, I felt like I was begging people to tell me it was a problem so I could justify getting help, not wearing my body down so much, eating more of what I wanted, and actually living my life. To the people that confronted me, thank you. It's wild now to see myself going out for ice cream and mini golf two times a week, ordering bomb pancakes or awesome salmon for my dad's restaurant without worrying what is on or in it, saying yes to spontaneous trips or picnics with friends where we just grab food and go do something. I'm living the best parts of life again, and that's something I didn't know I would be able to do again. Wow, I'm gonna I'm raise a glass for that one of chocolate oat milk. Touching back on the socially withdrawn piece, I feel like people don't really realize the extent or the scope of that. For me, I became a completely different kind of friend. I didn't reach out as often or hang out as often. I didn't prioritize my friends or their time. When I was with them, it's almost like my body was there, but my mind was somewhere else entirely. I couldn't invest myself in the time we spent together, and that's something I'll always be sad about. I wish I could have been more present with them. Eating disorders are honestly like this black cloud around your mind. They stop you from being able to see around you clearly, to see how your relationships have changed or how you've shown up differently in them. You aren't able to realize that you were the reason for that until you take a step back and begin to seek help. When you're in it, you're very much just stumbling around in the dark, and I'm not sure that makes sense to most people that don't struggle with it. It's hard to understand, and I get that. Many outsiders looking in just ask, well, why couldn't you realize the damage you were doing? Or didn't you feel bad when you withdrew from your friends? But the reality is you were so set, at least for me, I was so set and focused on what I was having for lunch and when I was having lunch and how many calories it would be that I wasn't even able to see there was a whole world moving and living outside of that. 
Moving on though, those that suffer from disordered eating habits typically are more likely to partake in other harmful behaviors because they feel calming at first, and eventually those behaviors create even more stress and hardship that make life even more difficult to manage. I can't stress this enough. Eating disorders take such a toll on the mind, and as that happens, the symptoms sort of just steamroll. It's like if you were going to roll a snowball down a hill. It only gets bigger as it goes because it picks up more and more snow. With that, we're going to get a little bit more into the brain now. Disordered eating is a complex, clinically significant mental health condition, and it affects more than 20 million women and 10 million men just across the United States. In addition to the physical consequences, eating disorders are often characterized by psychological issues such as disordered, loud, controlling, unescapable, and intrusive thoughts, obsessive behaviors that might not even relate to food but to other areas of life as well, dangerously low self-esteem, increased tendency to engage in self-harm, anxiety, depression, social isolation, and a risk for suicide. Like any toxic addiction, an eating disorder is not just a phase or lifestyle choice or trend. They're real, life-threatening, biologically-influenced medical illnesses. In fact, eating disorders can actually be inherited, and like, not even inherited, but like, a generational thing. I learned that if your parents or someone in your family exhibits an eating disorder or has suffered from an eating disorder, you're more likely to develop an eating disorder as well. Even if the harmful eating habits start voluntarily, other detrimental behaviors build a life of their own and are wildly difficult to control. Many people don't consider eating disorders mental health conditions, and to them I say, get with it bro. This just results in people not recognizing that eating disorders have a tremendous psychological impact on individuals. They often occur with other psychiatric illnesses, anxiety disorders, substance abuse, or personality disorders. If you're listening now and listen to the first episode, you might have heard me say that a lot of my initial weight gain stemmed from the development of me having a dissociative disorder. I've learned that oftentimes people with my diagnosis have co-occurring eating disorders, which makes control of oneself literally exponentially more difficult. It's like instead of having one hand holding you down, now you've got too. And eventually, I will be doing an episode about dissociative disorders and other personality disorders that coincide or often result in eating disorders as well, so keep an eye out for that. Because eating disorders are a form of obsession or compulsion, they often can lead to addiction. In fact, individuals with eating disorders are up to five times more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol than the general population. People that self-harm or have some form of harmful addiction can often, like yo-yo dieting, switch back and forth between these destructive behaviors. A lot of times people need to be careful that in beginning treatment or going through the recovery process of one, they need to make sure that they don't switch to another form of coping that's equally as destructive. This can be difficult because we're deceiving ourselves and thinking that we're getting better in one area and that can make us blind to the door we're opening to another habit or behavior that can be harmful to us. We are getting all kinds of personal and I'm not sure how to feel about it, but I've struggled with self-harm for a while and I began to notice as my eating disorder evolved, the urge to hurt myself started to die down a bit because I was now punishing myself in another way. That was a little too uncomfortable for me. I don't be liking to talk about self-harm when it comes to me, so... Hey. I have to joke about it because that's yeah. literally... <laughs> Eden. I have to joke about it because that is literally how I cope with trauma, so please forgive me. Sorry about it. 
maybe there's someone out there that can relate and knowing that they're not alone will be beneficial for them. When someone struggles with an eating disorder, there are a variety of health risks that come into play. And actually, brain damage is one of them. Disturbed eating patterns adversely affect proper nutrition absorption, which can result in the brain not getting the proper nutrients that it needs to work as it should, which can be especially detrimental to adolescents, which is a large majority of the eating disorder population, because their brain is still developing through their early adulthood. Having an eating disorder during that time can result in very crucial periods of growth being disturbed. When you got Brillo pad hair growing all up in your grill, your brain is growing too, or at least it's supposed to. During puberty, the part of the brain responsible for making decisions, planning, thinking about consequences of certain actions, solving problems, and controlling impulses largely begins to develop. And if someone has an eating disorder during that developmental period, their ability to do all of those things is kind of limited and more difficult to foster. Researchers and professionals are learning even more about how eating disorders like anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder affect our brain. While there's still a lot to learn, it's apparent that a person's nervous system, which includes the brain and their nerves, is negatively affected when they have restrictive behaviors. Research has found that eating disorders may cause disruptions in neurotransmitter behavior. Neurotransmitters are chemicals that transmit signals from one nerve to the next, Also, an increased risk for adolescents to develop neurological symptoms in early adulthood like headaches, muscle pain, bone pain, etc. Parts of the brain undergo structural changes and abnormal activity during anorexic states. Reduced heart rate can often deprive the brain of necessary oxygen. Nerve-related conditions including seizures, disordered thinking, and numbness or odd nerve sensations in the hands and feet also occur, and a weakened response in the brain regions that are part of the reward circuitry occur. The reward circuitry links together a number of brain structures that control and regulate our ability to feel pleasure. Feeling pleasure motivates us to repeat behaviors. For me, the counselor I'm seeing taught me that I had put these reward systems all out of whack when I'd have my cheat days. Pleasure chemicals are naturally released when we eat. However, because I would build up my cheat days so much, in my mind, I made it out like the slice of pizza I was going to eat would be like riding on a white horse to a land full of golden retrievers, crunchy peanut butter, yes, I did say crunchy, and Elvis Dumbledore telling me that he loved me. I assumed it would be the best pizza I would ever eat, but in reality, it was just pizza. My brain wouldn't release those pleasure signals, and so I would continue to eat because nothing satisfied what I'd built up in my mind. Anywhoville, back on track. This is so wild to me because I never would have known, but eating disorders actually create a shrinking in the overall size of the brain, including both gray and white matter. Gray matter allows the brain to process information and release new information through axon signaling found in the white matter. The gray matter throughout the central nervous system allows individuals to control movement, memory, and their emotions. White matter essentially functions in affecting learning and brain functions, modulating the distribution of action potential, and coordinating communication between the different brain regions. So basically, the part of our brain that controls movement, memory, and our emotions, and the ability to send signals to other parts of the brain, shrinks. If we learn something, our ability to relay that information to another part of the brain that will actually do something about it or remember it is pretty awful. Our memory becomes increasingly poor. Our ability to understand, communicate, comprehend, or even control our emotions is shot. Our ability to learn new things, even things that could help us, stinks. 
And that makes it even harder to get treatment and is why so many people don't because you can realize maybe you need help, but actually being able to do something about it, your brain is basically in quicksand. Eating disorders also lead to a negative impact on the emotional centers of the brain, which leads to irritability, depression, and isolation. The ability to think, to switch tasks, to stay on task, and to properly set priorities for oneself goes out the window like a warm sack of bologna. Our brain literally shrinks, bro. Like for cereal, what the heck? You can't process your emotions. You can't understand your emotions. You can't deal with your emotions. It's like you are just spewing things everywhere and you're out of control. And it's so ironic because eating disorders are largely all about control, but really it just ends up with you being out of control. Your brain does not allow you. It no longer has the capability to process and communicate your own emotions. LOL, that was extremely depressing. I apologize. For the people that are listening for a loved one, I bring up the brain for you among them. Those that struggle can recognize and feel that they aren't themselves. And while they may or may not know it's their eating disorder, they can't explain how or why it has such a chokehold on them and they're unsure how to get back to themselves. I bring this data to you to tell you and to show you that the reason they appear to have changed or become someone else is because their brain quite literally suffers damage as they go through this. The ability that they that you have to control your emotions and understand your feelings when you have them is more navigable than one suffering with disordered eating. Their ability to do many things like set valuable priorities like work or making time for loved ones or being a good partner is inhibited. To add to that, so is their ability to control or comprehend their emotions or give anything their primary focus. Their brain is very possibly shrunken and with that comes the lack of ability to do things they may have been able to do before to the same degree, so it's hard to hold them to the same standards. I may have been able to understand the depth of sadness when I was sad or why I was sad, but with my eating disorder, a lot of feelings came through a screen and I couldn't understand them to save my life. Sometimes I didn't even know they were there until it was too late. It can be difficult to understand why or how someone changes when we haven't been through something ourselves. I hope this tangible data, this physical picture and evidence can somewhat help give you an answer to why your loved one might appear differently, an understanding as to why they seem to have changed and to why they appear to act different. And in saying that, I'm not trying to use an eating disorder as a scapegoat for things that are wrong or unjustifiable behavior. When people make mistakes, they have to take accountability for those things. They have to take responsibility and it's their responsibility to do something with that and to change. They can't just blame it on something like an eating disorder. So even if you have an eating disorder, it doesn't give you a free pass to be a jerk to the people around you or to treat them poorly. It is your responsibility to get help, to acknowledge where you've went wrong, and to apologize and acknowledge the feelings of those that you've hurt. Does it get better? When you consider everything our brain does for us, which is basically everything, and it's at the center of who we are and how we operate, information like this is daunting as hell. Once again, it's like rock bottom where weird fish are making whack noises and there's an old man snorting some Poseidon powder off Pearl's dorsal fin in the corner. But there is hope. Many scientists believe that at least some of what was lost can be recovered. And while not all health organizations sort of have the same opinion on the extent, every single one does believe that damage reversal is possible. Factors that might influence the amount of damage reversed seem to include the duration and severity of the eating disorder. A patient who suffers from anorexia or bulimia for a number of years will have naturally just built up more damage to their brain than someone who finds treatment and recovery early on in their illness. And the scary thing is, this is the 
the third time I'm saying this fact, but only 10% of those struggling often can accept that they need help and will have the support or resources to seek it out. The extent to which the brain is damaged doesn't change or depend on the type of eating disorder a person has, though. A 2010 study led by researchers at Yale studied the detrimental effect of restrictive eating on the brain, as well as the possibility to recover. The study, which was published in the International Journal of Eating Disorders, compared MRI images of female patients who ranged in the ages from 18 to 45. 32 of those women had an eating disorder and 21 were without any type of diagnosed psychiatric illness. Every subject that was a part of this study underwent brain scans before receiving inpatient weight gain treatment. Once they'd reached 90% of their ideal weight gain in treatment, they were scanned again. The average gray matter volume of the woman with an eating disorder before their treatment was significantly less than the individuals that were considered healthy. 648 milliliters versus 680 milliliters. Those who'd been struggling the longest showed the greatest reductions in brain volume. After their second scan, the one following their treatment, the disordered eating participants' gray matter increased to an average of 663 milliliters. And while it still wasn't fully up to par with the healthy individuals and can of course lead to long-term effects, the fact that some restoration occurred gives hope. Researchers that led the study noted that while the brain's gray matter hadn't fully recovered, they believe it would continue to grow and potentially normalize if the patients were able to maintain their weight gain. Studies like the one done at Yale are very encouraging to members of the eating disorder community. They show that brain damage, like other health consequences caused by an eating disorder, can at least somewhat be reversed. Healing, of course, takes time, which can be confusing for people because... When we've taken big steps in controlling our eating behaviors and we consider ourselves to be getting better, we naturally assume that our brain is on that same train. But it's important to remember that the damage the brain endures is really serious, just like the damage other body parts go through when we're injured. The process of it recovering isn't something that happens overnight. Speaking from personal experience, when I was struggling the most with my eating disorder, I often felt very out of control. It's been painfully difficult to be in touch with myself, to feel like myself, to act like myself. I very much felt like I've had no sense of free will or control, which is ironic because eating disorders are all about control. Have I mentioned that one or two or five times? Well, what's one more for good measure? I think mine actually stemmed from feeling out of control in other areas of my life, and so I thought food and exercise could be the one thing I could control, which actually it just led to me being even further from having my hand on the steering wheel. I didn't recognize myself a lot of the time, and that made me feel crazy and out of reach of those that cared for me. I didn't feel like I was able to connect with them or able to be understood by them because it was like I was in a parallel universe where instead of feet, everyone was ripping on those moon shoes that came out in 2006 or something. Looking at these facts now, it's a little comforting despite being scary. As I said in the second episode, I'm a huge answers person. I like to understand and to know why. And knowing that my brain has actually endured damage and shrunk because of what I've put myself through, it makes it like only a sliver easier to understand why I acted and did a lot of things I did that were very out of character for me. I've always been very caring and thoughtful and I became stupidly indifferent and unable to process emotions or consider others. I've always been wicked social. My friends know that if they know balls me, I'll do anything. Shouldn't have told you that. I became super socially isolated, which was crazy out of character for me. I have a difficult time forgiving myself, especially when I hurt people I care about, not that this knowledge is any type of excuse, because it isn't. 
it does help me a little bit to better understand what may have contributed to why I acted in ways I shouldn't have. And it also helps me to separate who I know myself to be and who my eating disorder among my dissociative disorder made me out to be and turned me into. It's critical to have this kind of knowledge, especially if you're going through a similar struggle, because finding help, having good support, and seeking good resources are all major parts of understanding and separating your eating disorder from you and getting back to the person you know yourself to be outside of all the havoc disordered eating is wreaking on you. It's key for self-awareness, which is so difficult to have when you're in the midst of this battle, but you got this. If you've listened this far, as always, you are the goat and deserve your favorite box of cereal with some jellyfish jam. Please like, share, and save this so I can continue to grow. I know this episode was pretty packed. Give yourself a pat on the back for making it through it. I think there's so much value in having this kind of knowledge and being able to understand it. Not only does it make us more mindful of ourselves, but it also makes us more mindful of those around us that may be struggling. I've got a skimboard calling my name right now, and it is a crisp 86 degrees out, so I'm going to go hit some waves, but I do hope to see you next time when I talk about things we need to stop saying to one another, comments we make that we might not realize can be harmful. Hope to see you next time, and my dog says you're worth a thousand bagel bites. I am only human, and this podcast is a record of my education, learning, and recovery process. I am not an expert on recovery or eating disorders. I am just sharing what it is that has helped me in my journey and the knowledge and research I've done that I think could be beneficial to others. It is never my intent to say something harmful or offensive to anyone, and if for some reason I've spoken in a way I shouldn't have or that was damaging to you, please feel free to privately message me so I can continue to be more mindful and aware as this podcast 